The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles in again and open them to, to Acts chapter 3. Today I, we're taking a break from our study of the Spirit of Christ. And I've done this on a couple of occasions. It gives us uh, uh, an opportunity to take a little bit of a rest from that topic. Not that we necessarily need one. But it gives us an opportunity to think about some other things, to talk about uh, other things. And I think this, this is good for our church, especially what I want to preach to you this morning. Sat down with the Jimbrin family here at the front, and, and uh, we had a delightful time of fellowship. They're very, very hospitable people. And one of the, the topics that we discussed was the difficulty of finding preaching from the Bible in the churches that they visited. And I remember uh, they quoted, or at least I can paraphrase it, I think, it's, I think it may be a line from John MacArthur, if I remember correctly, who said that church services today are, are a, a rock show with a TED Talk. Um, and so we just sat there and together we commiserated uh, about biblical preaching, the lack thereof, and the use of God's word in the preaching from the pulpit. So I thought about this issue and it brought to my mind uh, a subject that I'd preached many years ago. Uh, this was when we were studying the book of Acts. And uh, th- those sermons are so old that you won't find them on the uh, website to take an act of Congress to figure out where one of these, we can get a recording of it. So I have little fear that you remember what I preached so long ago. So if you'll permit me, it's one of the advantages of having a long ministry in one church. I have a trove of sermons that I preach that nobody remembers. And that remember, that's also including the one I preached last week. Uh, one of my treasures that, that I have held on to for many years are handwritten copies of my father's sermons going back about 60 years ago. And uh, uh, on the corner of some of these sermons, many of them, in fact, uh, there are dates that are written up in the upper right-hand corner, and those are the dates that he repeated a sermon over the years of his ministry. And those would follow upon several different years between them over that 40 years. Uh, I've rarely picked up one of his sermons to preach. Uh, That's mainly because our our methods of... uh, organization and so forth are quite a bit different. They don't mesh very well. But what I have done is to take some of his topics, some of the comments that he made, and I've incorporated them into the research that I do on some subjects. For instance, in preaching about the tabernacle. Uh, he preached uh, through the tabernacle many times during, during my younger years. And so I took some of his material, incorporated it into the sermons that I preached, did the same thing in the book of Revelation, uh, used his uh, comments on that as well when we were studying that book a few years ago. But that long, long time between uh, preaching and uh, sermons in one ministry still keeps them fresh and repeatable. And as someone said, uh, if a sermon is worth preaching once, it's worth preaching twice. If, if it's not, then probably you shouldn't preach it the first time. Uh, so what I've done today is I'm, I'm going back to the series in Acts, and what I do is I revise these things as I go back and think about 20 years of preaching. I've learned a lot in, in those 20 years and changed somewhat in style and so forth. So I update the sermons. And, but this one was from, from uh, I think uh, if I was to get exact about it, 18 years ago. 
And some of you, this morning, you look at that listening sheet that you have and you see 10 points. And you're frightened by 10 points. Uh, you think you might be late for work tomorrow. Uh, but you need to calm down a little bit. Uh, Peter's sermon wasn't all that long, even though uh, it had many points. My reiteration or retelling of his points will be a little bit longer than the reading will be. But I promise uh, you won't need a haircut before we get done today. Now, if you look at chapter 3, beginning with verse number 11, we read the earlier part of the chapter that provided the, the setting for Peter's second sermon. So we connect now with Peter's sermon uh, that comes in this next section, beginning in verse number 11 of Acts chapter 3. And as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from his iniquities. Thinking back on the conversation with the Jimbrans, there is a terrible dearth of gospel preaching across our nation. As you know, I, I am a fan of Puritan preaching, mostly because of the, of the uh, impassioned expositions of the great doctrines of the faith. I, I don't believe there were any men who preached who were as adept at pulling uh, the depths of meaning out of the scriptures as they did. 
The Puritans were unique because they could, they could do that without being dry and boring. They just had a passion for the Word of God and, and a passion for the people of God that heard them preach. And so they were, they were men who were able to connect expositional sermon with interested listeners. And that's a very difficult thing to find today. People that want to hear an expositional sermon and will stay interested in it to learn from the Word of God. But I believe that as Baptists today, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our great God and Savior, that we need the power of preaching that was in the Puritan pulpits. But we need to go back further than the Puritans. We need to go back to where they went, and that was to go to the apostles and what we read in the Word of God and see what they preach, what the apostles preach, and what it was that drove them. And then we come to that and we repeat the positions that they had and preach with the passion that they had for our Lord Christ. Now I hope that my sermon today will show you how much Bible uh, Peter put into his sermons and, and how he drew on the Word of God and, and how he preached Jesus Christ. And that's the title of our message today, Preaching Peter's Preaching Points. It all comes from this passage. Now chapter 3 in Acts comes up on the heels of Peter's first sermon on Pentecost. We're well acquainted with the effect of that first sermon When Peter preached on Pentecost, uh, he was empowered with the gospel by the Holy Spirit, and thousands came to Christ in one day. The disciples from that point as the church were given Pentecostal power, and that's not the Pentecostal power that we think of today. When, whenever someone mentions Pentecostal power, what they have in mind is faith healing. They have in mind speaking in tongues. They have in mind cl- false claims of what the Holy Spirit does. But those things are not real Pentecostal power. When we speak of Pentecost, we speak of a power to preach the gospel of Christ. And Pentecostal power is needed in the pulpit today. We need to preach the gospel, not do all this other stuff that people are doing, what churches are doing, and certainly not the false gifts that people display of the Holy Spirit. And so these disciples began to fan out and to preach the gospel wherever they could find a place to preach. Well, the first encounter of the apostles after Pentecost is with a man here that we see in chapter 3 who was lying at the gate of the temple. And there he was begging for money. Evidently, he'd given up all hope of being healed. He's now begging for money. That's the best that he could do. He was a crippled man. He was a man who was lame from his birth. And Peter and John had compassion on him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, this man was healed. It was a genuine miracle. It wasn't a Benny Hinn type miracle. It wasn't a strange fire claim. No, this was a real miracle because these people knew who this man was. They'd seen him lying at the gate. They recognized him when he came into the temple leaping and praising God. They were aware of who he was. They saw him often at the gate. Now he comes in, stands up, leaping and praising God as he enters into the temple area. Now... It is immediately after this miracle that we pick up in these text verses where Peter preaches his second sermon. Most of the time we focus on that first message on Pentecost, and this one might get a little bit lost in the reading of the book of Acts. But here are some terrific preaching points. Now I suppose that what strikes me first about this sermon is that Peter used another opportunity for preaching. A crowd had gathered. He's at the temple complex, and the crowd is trying to decipher what has just happened. 
what about this man that we've seen there lying at the gate? And now he comes in, he's standing up, he's rejoicing, he's leaping, he's praising God. What about this? Now, just like the day of Pentecost, they were confused. They needed an explanation of how this could happen. How can such a great, uh, great miracle occur? In Acts 2, you remember, it's the different languages that were spoken. And they wondered at that. How are these men who have never learned these things, how are they able to speak in the languages of other people things that they haven't learned? So the same types of questions are being asked about this man who's healed and leaping and praising God. Now, Peter saw that confusion. And it gave him an opportunity to hit these people right between the eyes with a message concerning the one who made this miracle possible. Peter was an opportunistic fellow. A crowd gathered. And he knew better than to let a crowd get away without being preached to. And so he seized on their questions and he began to tell them about Christ. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking uh, of the opportunities that we have. How often do we let those opportunities go by? A door opens, but we don't walk through it. We don't, we don't take that little crack, that little opening that we have to speak to someone about Christ. Instead, we shy away from it. That's not what we find in the apostles. And that's not how they were able to, to make the church or the, God enabled the church to grow so rapidly in those days. What Peter saw was a soapbox, a place to stand up and preach Jesus Christ. Now, God had a purpose beyond the man's physical healing. And the purpose was that these people would hear good, solid preaching. And if you don't mind, I'll add to that. It was Baptist preaching. I, I remember when I was growing up that my dad was always looking for preaching opportunities. I remember attending many funerals where the only chance to preach to the relatives of the deceased was in a funeral service. And so I've heard many evangelistic messages at funerals. He did the same thing at weddings. Uh, there are many guests that come to weddings. Uh, you don't have the opportunity to speak to them, and they are a captive audience. They're not going to leave before the reception. And so uh, I, I've taken that model, and I've used that in, in weddings that I've preached as well. Give people that are in the audience uh, the gospel. I, I don't mean a hellfire brimstone sermon, but I mean let them know about Jesus Christ and what marriage, the value of marriage, and what God has created, and who is in control of all of that. When I was young, I remember a home missionary that our church supported. Uh, he was an eccentric old fellow. His name was W.C. Neville. And uh, I believe he was from Jackson, Tennessee. And this is when I was very young. And he would come to, to visit us and he would come to our home. And I remember he always had to have a rocking chair put in the bedroom for him. So he would sit there and rock as he read the Bible and as he prayed had to have a glass of buttermilk on the table. And so my mom would go to the store and she'd get buttermilk and we'd all hold our noses while he drank it. And uh, But he just he had to have all that stuff. Just a very strange fellow. But he was an opportunistic man. He was always looking for those opportunities to preach. Always traveled by Greyhound bus. So we would go and pick him up at the bus station. And on the way to our house, he'd say, let's stop here. And he'd go into a restaurant and he would interrupt everybody and he would begin to preach. And then uh, when we were on our way to church, we would leave a little bit early. He would go to one of the fanciest uh, restaurants that we had in town. And he would go in there and preach before we got to church. 
Sometimes he would, I don't necessarily recommend this, but he would go into the bars downtown that were very busy, and he would go in and he would preach the gospel. And then when all that was through, of course, when he'd done, present, done presenting his work at our church and told us what he'd been doing, then we'd take him back to the bus station, and he would preach before he got on the bus, and then he would get on the bus, and he would ask the bus driver if he could preach to the people while he's driving down the road. And so he'd grab the, the bus driver's microphone, and he would preach to people on the bus. Now, that, that was in the days before anybody sitting there was ACLU and would complain, we, did, we, we have the right not to listen to this. No, they, they listened, and he preached. He took the opportunities. I believe these disciples were the same way. Anytime they could get a crowd together, they would preach. Never missed opportunities. And as I said, the, the church in Jerusalem grew And it grew because they didn't miss the opportunities. So Peter had a crowd. They're already curious about what happened. And he began to preach another sermon. Now I'd like for us to look at his preaching points and consider this subject, preaching Peter's preaching points. He preached points we need to preach. Now we'll notice point number one of his sermon that Peter preached and, and shows us that we need to preach for the glory of Christ. Now first, the first observation of Peter's sermon was to make it clear that neither he nor John deserved the credit for the miracle. And so he turned the attention away from himself and John and he gave God the glory for what just happened. In verse 12, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus. Peter said, don't look at us. Don't look at us as if we we are the miracle workers. Don't look at us as if this was done in our power. The miracle working power belongs to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you want to know who deserves the credit, go to God. Because he is the power of the miracle. Peter is much different from the fake healers of today. He didn't thrive on personal attention. He wanted no taste of glory for himself. And he didn't want any mistake about who was responsible for the healing. I think there are too many of us that when we do something that we think is great for God, we're just waiting for the pat on the back. Somebody tells what a good job we're doing. You're such a good person. You're the power of God is in you. That's for sure. Well, it may be, but we're not seeking for people to recognize us. We, we want Christ to be magnified. So he didn't want the message to get around town that they were miracle workers. He wanted the message to get around town that God worked a miracle. He, Peter didn't care if their names were mentioned. Made no difference to him. It's God's work. And so, They wanted to exalt and magnify the name of Christ. And that's what preaching is about. I wouldn't give you 15 cents for all the preaching that doesn't exalt Jesus Christ and give him the glory for all things. So when we preach, let's talk about what God does, about how God has blessed, and about what Jesus can do for lost sinners. And if our names are never mentioned, that's okay. He deserves the glory. Don't think God's going to bless a message where the preacher is the hero of the story. Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And the gospel was Christ and Christ alone for the salvation of souls. 
And I would say that's a pretty good preaching point. If all of our messages have Christ as the theme, we, we can't go wrong. So Paul's, or Peter's first order of duty, his first preaching point, was to exalt Christ. We're called to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ is always the theme of our message. Now, secondly, gets a little bit harder as he goes along. Preach our willful rejection of Christ. Preach our willful rejection of Christ. Verses 13 and 14. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer be granted unto you. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Now, Paul, or excuse me if I say Paul instead of Peter. I'm so used to talking about Paul. We don't often preach about Peter. But Peter didn't adjust his message to leave out the offense of the gospel. He aimed directly at their sin. It wasn't a message to tell them how awesome they were and say to them, you know, really the only thing that you need is just a little bit of an attitude adjustment. You need to think a little bit more positively about yourselves and then things will be all right. Just think positively. No, Peter preached to them that they were in rejection of the Savior. And not only were they in rejection, but when Pilate was willing to let him go, they still demanded that Jesus be crucified. They hated him so much that they would rather let a murderer go free. Rather let a murderer go free than to stand one more day to listen to the preaching of Jesus. Now, I'll tell you something about that. It shows that they've weighed their options. Peter gave them, or rather, uh, Pilate gave them the option. Will it be Jesus or will it be Barabbas? They weighed their option and they chose Barabbas. What does it tell us? It tells us they willfully rejected Christ. They willfully rejected all the good that he did, all the miracles that he performed. That goes out the window. They don't think about that. They don't want Jesus. Want Jesus. So this is a terrible crime, crucifying the Lord of glory. Now, people don't understand that though we weren't there when Jesus was put on the cross, we too are guilty of his body and blood. Now, I don't mean, and don't misunderstand me, that we're going to be judged for actually hammering nails into the body of Jesus. Now, we're not the ones who did that. But it was for our sins that Christ died. We are all guilty for our sins He was put on that tree. And for the sins of the believers of all time, Christ died. And God holds us responsible for that. His death was the requirement as the, for the substitution of our sins. Now, Peter's message is recorded for us, and it fits us as well as it did to the Jews who consented to the death of Christ. We're guilty. And so when we preach, we need to preach that people are sinners and under the just condemnation of God's law. And should we continue in our rejection of Christ and die and go to hell, it is what we deserve. Preach that people willfully reject Christ. We live in the pleasures of sin. And if not for the grace of God, we would never be pulled out of that sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So left to ourselves, we would be content to stay in sin unless and until 
the Holy Spirit shines the gospel light into the darkness. And so for people to be saved, you must preach that they are lost. They must know that they are sinners. You don't want to miss that point. And folks, quite frankly, it's one of the most often points that is missed from the pulpit today. That people are sinners who need to be saved. I mean, who preaches that anymore? Who preaches that we are sinners? Who preaches there's no self-help that will better anyone? Peter preached to these people about heinous rejection of Christ in favor of their own self-righteous religion. So they denied Christ, they crucified him instead of believing in his name. Remember that point, Peter preached that people are sinners in willful rejection of Christ. Now Peter then moves on to his third preaching point. Thirdly, he preaches the death of Christ. Verses 14 and 15, But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life. These people killed Christ. Now, again, these are the ones who did the physical act, or they were part of that mob. It was their act, and yet what they did worked into the perfect plan of God. It was God's plan that Christ would die. It was his plan that this was the only way that sins could be forgiven. Christ must die. That's the plan, going all the way back before the foundation of the world. Before the first thing was created, God knew a Savior would be needed. And it was God's love for us and his love for his Son in deciding to send the Savior to us. Christ loved us in dying for us. And God loved his own Son by providing for him a people that would glorify him through faith in him. People need to hear point two. They're lost. They are guilty. They're condemned because of their sins, but you don't want to stop at point two. You don't want to stop there because that leaves everyone guilty without relief. Oh, they must hear point number three. There is a Savior who died to take away the guilt and the penalty of our sins. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. So when we preach Jesus, preach that he died to satisfy God, for the sins of all who believe. Peter preached the death of Christ because only in his death is there satisfaction. Only in his death is there atonement to God. Then fourthly, when we preach, we must preach the resurrection of Christ. Now, I hope you see this sermon is building. He speaks of the glory of Christ. He moves on to the depravity of man. He goes to the death of the Savior. Next, he comes to the resurrection. A dead Savior in a tomb does no one any good. A Christ on a crucifix hanging around your neck does no one any good. A Savior whose body is stolen from the grave does no one any good. A Savior who is not truly dead and not truly risen is not truly a Savior. Now Peter preached this because the story was circulating that there was no resurrection. Jewish leaders claimed the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. Despite Roman guards that were under the penalty of death for allowing the tomb to be breached, still this is the story, and they were sticking to it. The body was stolen. No, no. The Savior, though dead, came back to life. And this is really the power that's missing in all other religions of the world. They have no Savior who is able to do this, who by his own power 
came back to life. There's no religion that has power that can bring anyone else, any dead person, back to life. You know, you see the bumper stickers with all the religious symbols that say coexist, when really Christians are the only ones that will continue to exist. That is to exist as the living, living, and not the dying, continually dying, and eternal conscious death. That's the difference in the symbols. Jesus is a resurrected Savior. Now he's at the right hand of the Father. The gospel is that Christ died and that he was put into the grave and that he rose from the grave. If Peter couldn't preach a risen Savior, then there is no hope for anyone. There would be no reason for him to be there talking to the Jews. The Jews weren't interested in Christ if he was still in the tomb. If he was still there, then he's nothing but an ordinary man. If he was still there, then what the Pharisees said about him was true. They said he performed miracles by the power of the devil. And that makes Jesus an imposter and a liar if he didn't walk out of the grave, just as he said he would. Now, Paul said he and the other apostles and Christians are false witnesses. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said but we're all false witnesses. We are liars if Jesus did not arise from the dead. If he didn't arise, then rejection of him is the only reasonable choice. Only if he came out of the grave under his own power and authority could he prove his claims and gain attention for what he preached. And that's exactly what happened. He did come out of the grave. The disciples were eyewitnesses of it. Paul said that over 500 at once saw Jesus risen from the dead. And really, when he, when he said that, many of those people were still living. You could go ask them, did you see this? And they would tell. There's proof of that. Now, if, if you want to reach people uh, and see them saved, make sure that you don't leave out Christ's resurrection. This is the very thing that validates all the claims that Christ made about himself. Anyone else is an imposter. Peter preached in verse 15, God hath raised him from the dead. Now, preaching point number five, preach faith in the name of Christ. Preach faith in the name of Christ. Now, when Peter healed the lame man in verse six, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It is by faith in Christ that he was enabled to walk and by faith in Christ, he received salvation for his soul. Now, our text says in verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It doesn't do any good to believe that there's a God out there somewhere. He's just out there somewhere. We don't know very much about him. It doesn't do any good to preach that Jesus was a pretty good fellow. Many, many people believe that. Jesus was a good man. Used to be that people doubted that Jesus existed. And that was going around. But now you don't find a serious scholar that doubts that Jesus was a real man who lived in Israel. Nobody denies that now. But that is not enough to save anyone. It's not enough. The only way to be saved is to have faith in his name. Now, the Bible doesn't mean that you need faith in this five-letter name called Jesus, and you just pronounce it right and everything's good. No, it, it speaks of the power that is represented by that name, 
that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he is Jehovah God. His name means salvation. And you must believe that this God-man named Jesus had the power to change lives, to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, to correlate the power of the name, I would refer you to Philippians chapter 2. We're, we're all familiar with it, where it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, what is that name then that differentiates Jesus from all others? Well, it's not in fact the name Jesus because... We have Jesus in the Old Testament. It's just a translation of the word Joshua. Uh, so, so what is the name that he's speaking of here? Well, the name is Lord. The Lord. He is Lord, ruler of heaven and earth, ruler of hell and all angels and all people. And in the consummation of the ages, all will bow before him as Lord. Whether that's in heaven or hell makes no difference. No one will mistake the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Now, Peter preached the name of Christ. He says very clearly in the fourth chapter in verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So we forget about Muhammad, Buddha, Pope, Salvation is the name of Jesus, in his name and no one else. How many people have this hope so, maybe so, religion. Some have this sincere belief syndrome. And you hear this, uh, if you listen long enough, you'll hear this, well, have faith. Just have faith in something. Believe it sincerely enough and everything will be okay. But sincere belief in the wrong thing will never save anybody. It's only the name of Jesus. He is Lord. That's where the saving power is. Just this week, I read that 30% of pastors believe that people can go to heaven by their good works. And, and they can go to heaven without Jesus. Pastors. Peter preached salvation by faith, through faith in the name of Christ. Now, sixthly, you may want to put a mark here because we're in the second half now. Preach people are without excuse. Verses 17 and 18. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. There's without doubt enough evidence everywhere for us to believe in God. And we'll start there. Belief in God. Romans tells us that nature reveals there is a God. You can't go out at night and look at the stars without knowing there's a God. You can't look at the beautiful landscape, see the mountains, see the running streams, and not know there is a God. You can't look at your own fingers and toes or look at a baby that's being born without knowing there is a God. I mean, at the very basic, people are without excuse to believe there is a God. I remember when our family used to come back from vacations, the next sermon that my dad would preach on that Sunday morning was always about the greatness, the goodness of God after he'd seen all the fabulous works of creation. 
He just he loved to travel in the mountains, and that's usually where our vacations were. They were in the mountains, and he loved clouds, and he would take pictures of clouds. It's just I remember the first time he flew in an airplane. He was he was amazed to see clouds, and that's that's the thing that really fascinated him. And he just correlated that. Remember that with Jesus is coming in the clouds. Can't, could we all think that way? Everything that we see reminds us of the power of God. Well, if there is a God and he created the world, then we're indebted to him. We owe allegiance to him. The quest of every person should be to find this God. And do you know, in fact, there isn't a place in the world where people haven't made a God, constructed a God of something that they can worship. They do it wrongly. Well, when Peter preached the ignorance of his people, of these people, he said, I, I want through ignorance that you did it. He wasn't trying to soften the blow and say, well, you know, it's just a mistake that you made. You just didn't know what you were doing. No, no, not for a minute. Their, 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 their ignorance was willful ignorance. And that's the worst kind. And this is the kind of, of ignorance that demands the most punishment. These people crucified Christ all the while knowing what the scripture said of him. They crucified him having seen the miracles that he did. And they crucified him with the understanding that we, they said, are the chosen people of God. What a horrible thing to reject when you have proof everywhere in abundant supply. That's bad. Isn't it? Isn't that bad? Well, just step back a moment and think about us. Think about us who now look back on the story after 2,000 years. What, what about Americans who have religious freedom? They can attend church at any time, just about anywhere. What person goes to church and sits under gospel preaching and, re, and then refuses to believe? What about that person who hears the gospel? Well, I think the Bible teaches that the hottest corridors of hell is where a person will live who's had all availability of the gospel and will not believe. It's better to have a bone through your nose and worship bugs and creeping things than to hear about Christ and not worship him. That is willful negligence. And that person, as I say, will have the hottest part of hell reserved for him. We are without excuse. We must tell everyone that your ignorance will not excuse you from the wrath of God. Paul says it best in Acts 17, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now you look at that and say, the times of ignorance God winked at. What, what does that mean? He winked at it. Did he just overlook it? No, he means that, it means that God has let this go on, he's let it go on, and now he's bringing it to bear. Now he's saying, God's commanding every man everywhere to repent. You've seen all the evidence. It's all right there before you. Now you must repent. And so when we preach the word, preach that all are without excuse. We are justly condemned for sin. Preaching point number seven. Preach repentance and conversion. This is found in verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now, Peter's message focused on the glory of Christ and the sin of the people and crucifying the Son of God. And his objective was to show them they were condemned sinners, but they aren't hopeless. They need to be saved. Peter preached that they were not the people of God. They claimed they were, but they weren't the people of God. They were outside his kingdom. Their natural birth was not enough. 
Now, we, we can't leave preaching off, though, with the negatives. Now, it's certainly true that when you read the Word of God, that there are many, many negatives. In fact, there's probably more negatives in Scripture than we find positive, especially when it comes to dealing with how Christians live and walk every day. There are many, many negatives. But here is where we don't want to leave off with negatives. We must follow what's been told here. People are sinners. People are on their way to hell. People need to be saved. Give them positive hope. Don't leave people in despair because anyone, and let me repeat, anyone, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, anyone who will believe may be saved. These people needed to repent. They must recognize themselves as terrible sinners against God and see then that Jesus Christ is the only one who can help. He is the Holy One of God. So Peter preached repentance and conversion because there is conversion. Uh, forgiveness in Christ. And this is conversion means to, to turn to God. Uh, spiritually speaking, they were on the wrong road. They were headed the wrong way. And so he's telling them, you need to turn around. You need to get on the right road and trust Jesus to save you. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So change the direction, turn and go the right way. And then when people got on the right road or headed that direction or turned around, a wonderful thing that would happen to them. What happens? Their sins are blotted out. Now, this means to have their sins rubbed off or wiped out. It's, it's a kind of a neat reference. It's a, it, it's a reference, of course, going back to that time of writing on a table of wax and then rubbing it off with a blunt instrument to mar it so it can't be seen or read any longer, destroy the record. And so just as that crippled man was a beautiful illustration of salvation, this is a beautiful illustration of what God does with our sin. When we trust Christ, the slate, the record, is wiped clean. It's all rubbed out. The psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah said, behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. You know, some people think, well, what happens is that God still retains those sins, and then what you need to do is you need to make installment payments on it. You, you need to be paying God back for this through your works and through all the things that you do, or God's going to restore that record of sins and condemn you to hell. But that's as far from the truth as it can possibly be. Sins are gone. When we're saved, Christ's blood covers all sin, everything that's in the past, everything that happens in the present, everything that will happen in the future. Christ is continually interceding for his people, never charging sins against us. And so sin is moved from our record to Christ's account. If any of it was left there for us to pay, we would all go to hell. But since Christ saves from all sin, we can have the refreshing that he speaks of in the last part of verse 19. Now maybe you don't know what that means. It actually takes us to an entirely different topic. But Christ promised it to us nonetheless. Peter was speaking to Jews. And he's saying to them, you can have a part in the coming kingdom of Christ. But to do that, you must believe in the king. Now, by the grace of God, you and I as believers in Christ today are grafted into that promise. 
that you and I, as believers, are granted the privilege of reigning with Christ in His millennial kingdom. Your salvation from sin, your repentance from sin, turning around and following Christ is every bit worth it. It is worth it. Now, when we preach, we must preach that people must repent of their sins, be converted to belief in Christ, and repent of all sins, not just the fact that they didn't believe. Now, on to preaching point number eight. We thank the Lord for preaching point number eight. When we preach, preach the second coming of Christ. Verses 20 and 21. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all its holy prophets since the world began. Now, I said the end of verse 19 takes us to another topic. And I know that you're thinking, what? How can we possibly have time for another topic? Well, here it is. Do verses 20 and 21 remind you of anything? Well, I hope that sometime in your Christian life that you've read all the book of Acts. We go back to chapter 1. And while they looked, this is in verse number 10, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, this is at the ascension, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He shall send Christ, this same Jesus. Now, if you'll permit me, I'd like to attach another thought to the verse. Now, we're going to get to the primary meaning of it. I'm not trying to invent some new thing here. But let's think for just a moment how that Christ comes in another way. I don't want to stretch interpretations, but let me give you just a thought. That when Christ comes into a person's heart, when that happens, there is another type of refreshing. The sinner becomes a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Your inner being is cleansed from sin. When you believe, Jesus lives inside you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Think about that promise that Jesus made, the Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost. It's a great thought. It's a great thought to think that I know that wherever I am, Jesus is with me. He sees through all the troubles that I have, all the heartaches that I experience. He's here in my rejoicing as well. And that is just what? A refreshing thought. But primarily, the verse means that Jesus is coming back in like manner as he went up. He will return visibly and bodily. And when he does, Israel will be restored to the promised land. During the millennial reign, the whole world will be the kingdom of Israel. And Israel's king, Jesus Christ, will rule over it. And it will be a world of perfect peace. After the millennial reign, the entire earth will be renovated, made perfect again. The curse of sin will be purged completely from the earth. Oh, there are many, many good things that happen when Jesus comes back. Lots of good things happen. But I'll say, lots of good things happen for the saved. If you are without Christ, his return will be a frightening experience. There's nothing for you to look forward to but misery and death. Uh, and and I, I think this is true, that if you've listened to the gospel today and Jesus comes back, you'll not listen then. If you won't listen now, you won't listen then. 
We need to preach that Jesus is coming back and all need to be ready for his return. Now, preaching point number nine, preach judgment is coming. Verses 22 to 24. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet. Now he's speaking of Jesus. Every soul that will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken have likewise foretold of these days. What we have here is a prediction of judgment. Every person will one day stand before God. If you are saved, you will stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. And at that judgment, you will not be judged whether you go to heaven or hell. Your belief in Christ has already decided that. You will go to heaven. You're judged at this time to be rewarded for how well you lived this Christian life. What kind of servant of Jesus Christ were you? Faithful service gets greater rewards. So the more faithful that you have been, the more rewards you will receive. Now, those who don't know Jesus will come before a different judgment. They come before the great white throne judgment. And neither is the person who appears there judged to where he will go. No, that's already decided. Rejection of Christ means that people end up in hell. That's already been determined. So everyone who stands at the great white throne judgment will not say, well, look at that list of good things that I did because God's not going to have any of those there. You didn't do any good things. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, there is no good record for you. So Jesus uh, tells us and speaks of degrees of punishment in hell in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. There it says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Every person needs to be aware they will meet their maker. Far better it is to meet him knowing Christ as Savior than to meet him being condemned. The wrath of God will be hurled at the unrighteous for all eternity. So judgment, that is another theme that's missing from the modern pulpit. Hell isn't mentioned. Instead, we're told people feel badly enough about themselves already. They just feel too bad. We need to cheer them up. We don't want to tell them about judgment and hell. And those who aren't told are left to die in trespasses and sin. And they'll never feel worse than when they stand before that judgment and hear God say, you have a sentence of eternal death. So when you preach, make sure you tell people that judgment is coming. To die without Christ means punishment in the everlasting fires of hell. Now, for your relief, Peter's last preaching point, number 10, is preach the privileges of the redeemed. Verses 25 and 26. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning Away, every one of you, from his iniquities. Now, Peter, again, speaking to Jews, he says, the Jews were blessed by having Jesus sent to them. 
They were God's favored nation on earth. The Jews were blessed because they were the children of the prophets. They were blessed because through their seed, that is through the seed of Abraham, Christ came. They were blessed because God sent Jesus directly to them. They were blessed because they were the first people granted repentance and forgiveness of sins. So these people had many advantages. Paul says in Romans 3, 1 and 2, What advantage then hath the Jews? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Oh, now we're starting to understand responsibility a little better, perhaps. In, in chapter 9, verses 3 and 5, Paul says, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. How could you be so blessed and not recognize who Jesus was? Seems impossible. Seems impossible, but it's true. They had privileges. They had blessings beyond compare, but they rejected the Messiah. So they were privileged without ever taking advantage of the privilege. But you and I who know Christ, we are blessed and guaranteed this privilege of knowing the Son of God and living forever with him. Paul wrote, or rather Peter wrote later on this in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. I think we may have read this last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So when we preach... We preach there is a heaven waiting for all who know Christ. You can't beat the benefits of this. You cannot beat the benefits and the privileges of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. There are guarantees of eternal life and everlasting fellowship with the Son of God. The redeemed are truly blessed and privileged. So Peter preached another outstanding sermon. This is one that uh, hits on every major theme of salvation. He had many preaching points. Uh, ten are not the completion of the sermon. Uh, I think that ten is probably all that modern congregations care to hear. There's more here. So these ten sprang from that miracle of healing the crippled man. And that was the purpose. That was the purpose. Healings were to attract attention to the gospel and to verify the apostles. And folks, we need to do as they did. We need to look for opportunities we must exalt the Savior. We must preach the word. We need to preach Peter's preaching points. These are vital. They're the message that Christ left his people on this earth to proclaim. Now a church that has a pastor, the church itself that fails to do this is in danger. As much danger as those churches in Revelation 2 and 3. We have a responsibility of Christ-centered gospel preaching. When Christ comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, I pray that he will find it in us, in the Berean Baptist Church. Blessed be God for churches that preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning admitting, confessing our weaknesses, our failures, and how we 
have so often not taken the opportunities that we have to declare the name of our Savior. Lord, we know that if we would change what we do and speak the word, we can't save anybody, but we do know that you use the word. You, you open up hearts and you will save whom you will. But the gospel must be preached. The word must be heard. And help us to preach the correct gospel, even as we've seen it here in Acts chapter 3. Lord, bless your people. Uh, Stir us up for you. Revive us for you. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, bring your, your greatness and your glory to be shown in the people of Berean Baptist Church. We praise you, Lord, for saving mercy and grace that you give us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.